I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. April showers bring a loaded sports calendar, and FanDuel is the place to bet on it all. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the Pulse and get paid instantly when you win. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit RG help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car, Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett after a very, very disappointing Celtics game, the most Celtics way ever. I should say the 2023 Celtics, most Celtics way ever for them to finish the season. You come all the way back, you erase the 3-0 deficit, all for nothing. You lose game seven at home to the Miami Heat. And now the Derek White shot, the putback at the end of game six will be forgotten in history. I'm sure some of you will have a soft spot for that moment, but you lost the series, right? It becomes the Julio Jones catch in the Super Bowl for the Atlanta Falcons, where Julio Jones made one of the greatest catches I've ever seen. But nobody talks about that play because the Patriots came back and they erased the 28-3 deficit and they won that game. So nobody cares about that Julio Jones catch. All anybody cares about is the Atlanta Falcons being historic chokers. I'm not saying the Celtics were historic chokers, but they lost the series. So that Derek White play, the Celtics wasted him saving that season and getting lucky at the end of that game. Okay, now I'm going to get into some of these big picture issues with the Celtics because now those questions are certainly back on the table. But I want to start with the Tatum injury. Certainly was a major factor in the game. The dude clearly couldn't move, but they still could have won the game. You can't use the Jason Tatum injury as an excuse when they were dealing with no Gabe Vincent in one game and they were dealing with no Tyler Hero the entirety of the series. And I don't think that Celtics fans would use that as an excuse. And the team certainly didn't use that as an excuse. That's why I had a problem with Stan Van Gundy saying it on the broadcast. He's like, Celtics fans can't point to this. No kidding. No Celtics fan. Like, understand this market. Nobody's pointing to that as an issue. And also this. Win one of the first three games, okay? And then the Jason Tatum problem isn't an issue whatsoever. I give him credit for gutting it out, but clearly you could tell 
he was hobbled. He could barely move defensively. I was actually shocked the Heat didn't go after him more, but that's a bad ankle sprain. You could clearly tell Tatum didn't have it, especially after he came out after the first quarter. I'll get into that in greater detail, but that just sucked. But the two biggest reasons the Celtics lost this game and this series, your second best player, Jalen Brown, was flat out horrendous, atrocious. And the other component is the lineup decisions by Joe Missoula in particular in game seven were really, really bad. We'll outline that in greater detail. And he did not have a good series. He had a good stretch in the series, but in totality, games one through three in the final game, he did not have a good series. And clearly there was a coaching edge to Miami that you would expect a coaching edge to be on Miami. But Missoula had a really, really bad game seven. And if you're doing the blame game here. Number one is Jalen Brown. Number two in this game is clearly Joe Missoula. Okay. Now, remember, we came out of this game where we're concerned, hey, is Jalen Brown going to protect the basketball, right? This is always a concern with Jalen Brown. He had eight turnovers, okay? When he came out of the game, he had eight turnovers in the game. Unbelievable, okay? At one point, he was out turnovering the Heat as a team, him himself. Eight turnovers. And remember, This was a problem for the Celtics as a team, the turnovers in the first three games of the series, and of course, they lost all of them. 15 turnovers in all three of those games. And just to put that into context, you look at the wins, 10 turnovers, 10 turnovers, 12 turnovers. No team this year is south of 11 turnovers per game. The Celtics twice were at 10, and only three teams were south of 13. Remember, the Celtics once were at 12. Only seven teams on the season averaged 15 or more turnovers per game, and the Celtics were at 15 in all three of their losses, and Jalen Brown tonight, when he came out of the game, the Celtics had 15 turnovers. He was responsible for eight of them. So your second best player in terms of when we we're actually counting the numbers that mattered when it wasn't garbage time, your second best player had 53.3% of your turnovers. That just can't happen. Jalen Brown is the main reason this team turned the basketball over. He had more than half the turnovers in this game for the Celtics. And the other component to this, like I alluded to the Tatum situation, With Tatum hobbled and injured, you needed Jalen more than ever. And he was a complete no-show. And his worst qualities came out in the biggest game of the season. He could not hold on to the basketball. You needed him badly with Jason Tatum dealing with this injury. And he was just really, really bad. So it was a combination for Jalen of bad decisions, sloppy ball handling, and bad shots in general. His shot selection was atrocious at times during this game. And it felt like to me, he said he wasn't pressing, but it felt like he tried to do too much. All right, so let's run through some of this stuff right away. You felt like, okay, this could be a bad Jalen game. It's one nothing to start the game after Tatum hits the free throw, the ankle situation. Next trip down the floor, Jalen just falls and turns over the ball. He literally just fell. This happens all the time with Jalen. Then it's 9-6. He had a turnover falling forward and Butler gets the layup the other way. Where it's like, it's so weird when Jalen, when he's dribbling the ball, it's like he gets so low and he's going, trying to go so fast that his body is like not connected almost in terms of how you have to be dribbling the basketball. It's like the front of his body is going too fast or his legs are going too fast for his mind and he just loses the ball. Then some other things from Jalen in this game. Duncan Robinson blocked his three. Duncan Robinson blocked a Jalen Brown three. I thought I would never see that in my life. I never even thought that that was an actual thing. Like I never thought Duncan Robinson would block a shot period against the Celtics. He blocked Jalen on a three, just embarrassing. 61-51, he just lost the ball. He had the ball in his hands. He went to dribble it. He just lost it. Like no pressure on him or anything along those lines. He just lost it. Then it's 61-51. The Celtics are trying to get back into this game. 
He took an awful three at the top of the key. And Jalen was atrocious shooting the basketball in the series from three-point territory. There was no pass. He just shot the ball at the top of the key. I don't know why you would do that. Like, it's trying to do too much. He was pressing in this game. And then he had an offensive foul where he just drives into Bam. They reviewed it. Obviously, it wasn't a technical foul or a flagrant foul or anything along those lines. But that was just a dumb play. Bam is just sitting there camped out right in front of the restricted area. Jalen, like, almost takes off from the free throw line in the air. What did you think was going to happen? You got a jump stop there. And take a little mid-ranger or a floater right there. And Jalen's really good at those shots. Instead, he's trying to go through Bam. What was your game plan there? You weren't going to score. If anything, you were going to get a charge. There was no, like, the best thing that could have possibly happened was what? You were going to get a foul. Like, he was right in front of you. So it's just a bad decision by Jalen. Then he's just dribbling the ball. And Jimmy Butler just from behind tips it away from him. They go the other way and they get a dunk to make it. 83-86, and then the next possession down the court after he has the turnover, he has a pull-up three, complete brick, and this is just a pull-up three. He dribbled the ball off the court and took a pull-up three without a pass in the possession whatsoever. So just another example, and then late in the game, he had that turnover, remember, where he just loses the ball when he's being defended by Bam in the corner. It wasn't because of Bam, he just lost the ball, went to Duncan Robinson, they go the other way and score. Jalen Brown, eight turnovers in this game, and... (laughs) There's no way around it. He was just really, really bad in this series. And if you look at it, tonight he's a minus 17. Only Grant was worse. More on that later, by the way. So Jalen in the series, or in the game tonight, 8 of 23, 34.8%, 1 of 9 from deep. If you now look at it on the series, he went 56 of 134, 41.8%, 7 of 43 from deep, 16.3%, and he was a minus 34. He scored 133 points on 134 shots. That's horrible. He had four games in this series. Second team All-NBA wants a Supermax. More on that later as well. Four games with fewer than 20 points. He had a horrible series. And if you just look at the impact metrics, not just the raw plus minus, the first six games of the series, because obviously the advanced stuff hasn't finalized tonight as we're recording late after the game on Monday night. But if you look at it in terms of when Jalen was on the court for the Celtics, they had a 110.1 offensive rating. Only three teams this season had a worse offensive rating than that. The Pistons, the Spurs, and the Hornets. The net rating, so how you were outscoring or being outscored per 100 possessions with Jalen on the court, minus 5.4. Only the Hornets, the Pistons, the Rockets, and the Spurs were worse. All the teams that were competing for Victor Wembanyama, and of course the Spurs are going to get him, but you get the point. If you look at Jalen when he was off the court, right, the Celtics on the court without Jalen Brown. 129.4 offensive rating. The Kings led the league at 118.6. They were at 129.4. They were unstoppable with Jalen off the court. The net rating, plus 10.5. The Celtics led the league at 6.7. They were at 10.4. So they played like the best offense we've ever seen in the history of the world with Jalen Brown off the court. And they played like the San Antonio Spurs and the Charlotte Hornets with Jalen on the court. So you played like a lottery team, a high lottery team with Jalen on the court. And you played like, the Golden State Warriors from the Durant-Curry era when those guys were playing together when Jalen was actually off the court. So this is your second best player. And he should not be this bad in the impact metrics. Now, the impact metrics have never liked Jalen because he's a turnover machine and he's not a good passer and he's not a good three-point shooter. So they've never really liked him in terms of the impact metrics. But this is just unacceptable. This is your second best player. How can you be that bad when he's on the court and that good when he's off the court, right? And look, we can talk about the losses in the series and the no-shows that this team had in general. 
as a group, as a unit, but the number one reason the Celtics lost Game 7 and the number one reason the Celtics lost this series, it's Jalen Brown. I hate to say it because I love the guy and I love what he's meant for this team over the past couple of years, but there's no way around it. Jalen Brown was a legitimate, damaging player. He completely hurt the Celtics in this series, incredibly damaging to what this team was trying to accomplish. He had the worst series I've seen him had in years. Even the Golden State Warriors series in the finals, he showed up, he had shots, he had turnover issues. He had turnover issues against Miami last year. He's never been this bad. This was unbelievably bad from Jalen Brown. He had 68 assists this postseason and 66 turnovers. I mean, come on, man. Jason Tatum had 105 assists and 56 turnovers. So 49 more assists than turnovers. Jalen had two more assists and turnovers. And look, Jalen is never going to be a high assist guy, but the turnovers are just mind-boggling. You can't have that big of a number in terms of the turnovers and just a two-assist separation. That almost looks like a made-up statistic, but it's not. And then you compare basically what the guy on the other side did, Caleb Martin, who quite frankly, I know Jimmy got the Larry Bird Award for the Eastern Conference Finals MVP, which kills me that Jimmy Butler got that in the garden. But anyway, I thought Caleb Martin was their best player. But if you're looking at Caleb Martin against Jalen, Martin shot 60% from the field, 49% from deep. Jalen, 42% and 17%, as we mentioned, I'm rounding up at this point. But Martin scored 135 points on 88 shots. Jalen, 133 points on 134 shots. Caleb Martin had the series that Jalen Brown was supposed to have as the second best player on that team. If you reverse the players, the Celtics win the series. And that's very troubling to think about considering one guy is on his way to potentially getting a massive Supermax contract and the other guy averaged, what, nine points per game this season. Okay, and the Charlotte Hornets didn't even want him. And I'm not saying that the Charlotte Hornets made the right decision because clearly they didn't. But I'm just pointing out that Jalen Brown should have had, and I'm not like, that's an incredible series. I'm not trying to take anything away from Caleb Martin. But these are the expectations if you're Jalen Brown. And he was flat out bad in this series. Now, I will get to the bigger picture stuff, the Supermax with Jalen a little bit. But I do want to start, uh, continue with the game stuff. So let's get to Joe Missoula. I've been fair with Joe. I've criticized him heavily. And especially earlier in the series, I criticized him at times during the Philly series, the Atlanta series, but I also gave him a lot of credit when the Celtics came back in the series and some of the decisions he made, which makes this game tonight, the game seven, just so perplexing to me because it felt like the Celtics had sort of figured some things out when they won those three consecutive games. All right, so let me get with, get to some of the big problems I have with Joe. Okay. If You look at Malcolm Brogdon, clearly he was not effective. He didn't even play in game six because he was dealing with that issue, the elbow tendon. He checks into the game in the first quarter with 515 left. He then airballs a three and you could tell he doesn't have it. Anybody watching the game, you saw that three. It's like, okay, this actually looks worse than it did in game five. He can't play. He can't shoot. Then he bricked a layup that wasn't even close when the score was 15 to 13. So I don't know about you, but I knew at the time. I could tell at the time, and I'm not acting like I'm this genius or anything along those lines. I'm just saying, if you're watching him, you could tell he didn't have it, okay? I understand wanting to try him, okay? Wanting to give Brogdon an opportunity to get out there and see if he can play. He's earned that as the sixth man of the year. He's earned that as a really good player for this team. Okay, I, if, if he's going to suit up, he's going to play, that's fine. But what you needed to have with Brogdon was a short leash. And this isn't me second-guessing Joe on this. I tweeted out prior to the game that, hey... If he's bad early, 
just remove him, okay? And now, luckily, he didn't go back in. They didn't play him again. But you waited too long to take him out there in the first quarter. You gave him too much rope. Right after that first three, you knew he didn't have it. There was no reason to keep him in after that because you knew that he could not shoot, right? And the thing, the issue with Brogdon is this. If he is not hitting his shots and scoring, he's not an impactful player in a positive way. In fact, you could argue he's a damaging player because he's not a willing passer, right? He sort of has blinders on. He's not a good defender. And he did a better job in the series, especially earlier on against Butler. Like, I'm not saying he's a turnstile or he's a traffic cone, but Smart's way better defensively. Derek White's way better defensively. Like, you have way better defensive options. And if Brogdon's not giving you the scoring and the shooting, which is why you play him big minutes when he's actually playing well, he doesn't really help you. You have better options from a defensive perspective, okay? So there's no way that he should have stayed out there for a seven-minute run. No way, okay? But anyway, he goes 0 of 3, 0 of 2. He was a minus 15 in fucking seven minutes. There's no way he should have played seven minutes. And let me tell you why. You look at it now for the series. He was 12 of 39, 30.8%. He was 3 of 18, 16.7%. And again, I'm telling you that he was hurt. We knew he was hurt. And this is something clearly the Celtics knew throughout the series. After game one, at that point, you should have made the change. Like, I don't know why he's playing a lot of minutes in game two or game three. Like, he should. those minutes should have been cut down earlier in the series. And especially tonight, when he's out there, end it, man. You know he doesn't have it. End it. Get him off the court. So I thought they gave him way too much rope. And if you look at it, the Celtics with Brogdon on the floor in the five games he played prior to tonight, because like I said, with the Jalen thing, it hasn't finalized. 111.2 offensive rating, which only five teams were south of 112. The Celtics with Brogdon off the floor, 117.3. Only four teams had an offensive rating better than 117 this season. So you had the evidence. I have these numbers. You have these numbers. <laughs> Joe Mazzulla and his coaching staff have these numbers. We all watched the games and could tell that Brogdon couldn't shoot. There was no reason to justify him playing seven minutes in this game tonight and getting the burn that he did. It just didn't make any sense whatsoever. And the other component to all this is you already had seen this in the first couple of games. Didn't you learn your lesson that he was hurting you when he was on the floor? Okay, so that was one issue I had with Joe. All right, the next thing is how he handled the first quarter minutes with Tatum. So with Tatum on the floor, Celtics 11-8, okay? Tatum goes off the floor. The Heat go on an 8-0 run, okay? They never get him back into the game. So right away, they go on the 8-0 run, but they never get him back into the game in the first quarter. So he sat for the final four minutes and 11 seconds, and the Heat, during that stretch, outscore the Celtics by 10 points, 14-4. So, and the other thing that is so aggravating about this is Jason Tatum was at the scorer's table. He was at the scores table and Joe never called the timeout to get him into the game. And I also like when we're talking about this injury situation with Tatum where he's dealing with an ankle problem. The worst thing to do is keep him sitting down. He shouldn't be sitting down for a long period of time because that's how you get swelling. It just doesn't make any sense. Why would he be on the bench that long? It was just so irritating to me. And don't you think Tatum looked now? I'm not saying he looked great right after the ankle sprain, but he looked a lot better than when he came in later. So. I just, I don't understand this. This is do or die. This is your life's on the line from a basketball perspective. And you have your best player sitting for four minutes and 11 seconds. And you're keeping Brogdon out there. Just get Tatum back on the court. And if you look at the numbers with Tatum, this series entering this game, 109.3 offensive rating with Tatum off the court. Okay. 136.0 with him on the court. Okay. So if you look at it, 
The Celtics, during the Tatum minutes this series, they were outscoring the Heat by 26.7 points per 100 possessions. They were outscored by 30 points in 51 minutes with Tatum off the court in the series, okay? Outscored by 26.7 per 100, 30 in total. You had a 136 offensive rating with him off the court. You couldn't do shit when he was off the court, right? So I just think that this is just another thing where you're thinking, where's the desperation? You need to ride this guy. And I really do think from an ankle perspective, and look, I'm not a doctor. I'm not pretending to be a doctor, but you don't want to be sitting with that ankle. That's how it gets swelled up even more. Okay, then I want to get to this. So 941 left in the third quarter. The Celtics decide, or Joe Mazzulla, which I like this move, they decide to put Robert Williams on the court. Celtics at that particular point in time are down 59-44. Al was getting abused early in the third. So they put Rob back into the game. During that stretch, Rob has a massive impact. In some of the plays, he had a layup on the roll from Tatum. He stoned Jimmy under the rim. Remember, Jimmy like threw it up and it hit the bottom of the rim. Rob did an outstanding job switching on Jimmy. He got an offensive rebound that led to the Tatum three to make it 66-56. So you were feeling good about the way Rob was playing. 449 left. In the third quarter, he pulls Rob for Al. Okay, so at the moment when Rob comes out of the game, it's 66-58. And the Celtics had their best offensive stretch of the game. That's when White was going off as well. Rob was doing his thing. So they had their best offensive stretch. They outscored the Heat at that point, 14-7, those minutes with Rob on the court. So, seven-point advantage for the Celtics. Rob did not come back into the game in the third quarter. Now, the Celtics were outscored by two points, 10 to eight. I'm not saying it was a wide margin, but with Rob on the court, you would just outscore the Heat by seven points. So I just don't understand why wouldn't you just keep riding what was working with Robert Williams, right? Like this is an in-game thing where you can clearly see, okay, Rob is having impact. I, I just don't understand how anybody can watch this game and don't think that Rob's having a huge impact on the game. Now, obviously it's not going to show up in the box score because he didn't play. I'll get to that in a second here. But during that stretch, he also put Grant into the game at one point for Al as the only big. And it was he was bad during that stretch. Now, he did hit a three when he was out there. But if you go back to the end of the third quarter, quarter rather, Jimmy hunts him for a step back three to make it 69-59. Bam goes at Grant, makes it 71-62, goes through him, hits a layup. And then luckily, he gave up an offensive rebound to Struess. And luckily, Derek White's able to swipe the ball from Struess and they get the ball back. But if you look at it, so those final couple minutes of that third quarter with Grant on the court, 50% of the points that the Heat scored were on Grant Williams, right? I mean, they're going at Grant Williams, hunting him and scoring. And there's no reason that you have to put Grant Williams on the court. Leave Rob out there. I don't understand why you needed to play Grant in that particular situation. It doesn't make any sense to me. And I like Grant as a player, but you could clearly tell he just didn't have it. And the Heat were going at him. They felt like, hey, this is an itch we can scratch. And they kept doing it. And that's just for me, reading the game, he clearly was not reading the game correctly, Joe Mazzulla. Okay, and then to start the fourth quarter, after the bad Grant minutes, he kept him in. He kept him in the game to start the fourth quarter. And I would ask you, how could anybody watching this game think, you know what the play is? Let's start Grant, who Jimmy just scored on, who Bam just scored on, who gave up an offensive rebound to Max Struess. Let's go to Grant. Made no sense to me whatsoever. He was a game worse. Worst, I should say, 19, minus 19 in 16 minutes. He played 16 minutes, and the Celtics outscored by 19 points when he was on the court. By the way, Rob in this game, Robert Williams, who was incredibly impactful in the third quarter, 
when Rob Williams was on the court in that third quarter, we alluded to it, the Celtics had their best offensive stretch of the entire game. You want to guess who played more minutes, Robert Williams or Grant Williams? Grant Williams. Grant Williams played 16 minutes and Robert Williams played 14. And I know some of that you say, well, it's garbage. No, in the competitive portion of the game, Grant was playing more than Rob. Get Rob back on the court. Get Grant off the court. It's just unbelievable to me. I just can't understand this. Unreal. So anyway, what happens to start that fourth quarter with Robert Williams on the bench and Grant Williams out there? The Celtics are outscored by seven points. And (laughs) Smart's not on the court either, which... Jason Tatum needs help with the playmaking because he's clearly hobbled. Jalen's turning the ball over left and right. He's not a playmaker. You had Robert Williams and Marcus Smart, your two best or two of your three best defenders, along with Derek White. You had those guys on the bench. I I don't understand it. He was a bad player in this game. Grant Williams was. What does he bring to the table offensively, right? Like Marcus at least can create and playmake if he's out there. Rob is catching lobs. Grant is what, a spacer? And it's not even like the Heat really respect him as a shooter. And he was not a great defensive player in this game either. So I just, I can't really understand that. You got the defensive player of the year from last year sitting on the bench. You got Rob on the bench. You got Grant out there after he was abused in the third. Again, this is reading the game. And then I'll say this about Joe as well. All year long, the Celtics leaned offense. In a closeout game, the Celtics scored 84 points on 91 possessions. That's a 92.3 offensive rating. They only had one game the entire season that they were worse than that. That game was the 18th of December against the Orlando Magic. And guess who didn't play in that game? Oh, your best fucking player, Jason Tatum. So the one time that you were worse than you were in this game tonight was when Jason Tatum didn't play against Orlando. That's how bad it was. We've heard about the three-point shooting all year and wanting to win the math battle. Well, I hope they're happy. They got up their 43s. Joe's going to be happy about that. Guess what? Nine makes in game seven. Second fewest they've had in the playoffs. They hit nine threes just five times this season. The fewest they hit in the game. Of course, they hit seven in that game six, but just nine threes in this game. So it sort of burned them leaning on the threes because it does feel like when they get behind, they get panicky. And we saw Jalen, he just started jacking them up. So Joe Missoula is supposed to be an offensive coach. That's his specialty. Well, the offense was bad. And if you look at it, Kevin O'Connor had the stat from Games four through six. So when the Celtics were winning those three games, the Celtics had an effective field goal percentage of 59.3% against man defense and 43.3% of an effective field goal percentage against the heat zone. So if you just put those numbers into context, Denver led the league this year with a 57.3% effective field goal percentage. So the Celtics were two percentage points better than the best offense in the NBA against the heat man defense. And if you look at the worst offense in the league this year, that was the Rockets at 51.6% in terms of their effective field goal percentage. So the Celtics were 8.3 percentage points worse than the worst offense in the NBA against the heat zone. Okay, so Joe is supposed to be this great offensive coach and they're running this zone. You know, the zone's coming and it just felt like they're running normal zone offense. They're not there's not a lot of play calls and I feel like they needed to help them more. Like I go back to the game where, hey, right out of a timeout, they knew the zone was coming. Tatum sprints out to the elbow, gets an easy shot. There just wasn't enough of that. There needed to be more of Jason Tatum getting the ball at the free throw line. That's one of the weak spots of the zone. Get it to your best player. That should have been the emphasis. Not like, hey, we can run around and do whatever we want. We can play with our normal zone offense and 
have it sort of be one of these things where it's an equal opportunity offense. No, that's not good zone offense in the playoffs against the Heat. It's going to be, let's get Jason Tatum the ball at the free throw line. They didn't do nearly enough of that because what you do there, and Rob should be on the court too when they're going zone because Rob can keep Bam occupied down low. Bam cannot come up to Tatum if Rob's there. He puts him in a bind and there's just so many times where the lineup combinations were just not correct for this team and the zone offense they needed to be more deliberate with it. Hey, this is what we're doing. This is how we're attacking it. And it just felt what it turned into was the Celtics just at times trying to shoot over the zone or Jalen Brown trying to dribble through the zone and turning the basketball over. Okay. So one other thing I noticed is Ali LaFour said that he liked the effort defensively in the first half. And it's not like the Heat had a great offensive rating in that first half, like a 113. So it wasn't like they were great, but I felt like there were still the same mistakes that we've been seeing throughout this series where I don't know why they kept dropping Al Horford because at one point Al dropped and Gabe Vincent still went by him for uh, an easy layup. But it did feel like they still had miss. They had those communication issues throughout this game as well. And we saw Duncan Robinson getting easy opportunities and guys walking into pull up jumpers. So I didn't feel like the effort on the defensive side of the court was good. I would disagree with Joe when it comes to that. But I think if you look at it, too. And I just hope that wasn't the message in the locker room, right? Like, I hope that's just what he said to Allie the Force. I don't know if he's like, hey, guys, the defensive effort's great. The offense is just the problem. The offense and the defense are both a problem in the first half and throughout this game. And like I said, I'm not in the locker room, so I don't fucking know what they're saying in the locker room. But I hope that wasn't the actual message. But anyway, I just look at this. You should have cut Brogdon from the rotation earlier in the series. And you got to the point where you were playing him in games in game five. So you needed to give him the opportunity in game seven. I totally understand why he played tonight. But he should have been cut from the rotation earlier. Now that we all knew after game one, he had the tear. He said it was incredibly painful. He was doing his post-game press conference. It was incredibly painful. He should have been out of the rotation sooner. And because of the fact I gave you those numbers, he turned into a liability. And I just look at what Spolster did. The Heat cut Love from the rotation. They cut Zeller from the rotation. The Celtics started to play more guys in game seven, right? Even like out of timeouts is one of the things that sticks out to me is, hey, have a play call ready for the zone every time. You know they're going zone every time. And then secondarily, how embarrassing was it when the Heat put on <laughs> a full court press? They couldn't even like inbound the ball. It's embarrassing. But anyway, I just feel like they did a much better job the Heat did than cutting guys from their rotation. And I get it. Brogdon is an established player in this league, a really good player in this league. And you don't want to rock the boat, but there's no way that you can justify all the minutes he got in this series prior to game five now that we know in the first quarter he tore that tendon which he actually confirmed in his post-game press conference all right I, I don't have much on Reggie Miller tonight because you know kind of sad I told you the other day like when Reggie when the Celtics win I like having fun with some of the dumb stuff that Reggie says but tonight I don't <laughs> the one thing I will say oh <laughs> He said, quote, the ankle looks fine there after Tatum dunked it. And then they show the camera literally goes to a shot of Tatum and he's grimacing. So clearly the ankle wasn't right because the rest of the game, Reggie Miller kept saying, but more importantly, the ankle. So after he says the ankle looks fine, they show Tatum grimacing. OK, so that was that was pretty bad. And then Jimmy Butler hit a three and he said, those are impactful threes when he takes them and hits them. Yeah. I would agree with you, Reggie. How could they not be impactful when he takes them and hits them? So just Reggie was bad as normal. I mean, I guess that's the one thing that I won't miss about the postseason is don't have to deal with this Reggie Miller situation anymore. He's horrible. TNT's really got to address that. Too many good people breaking down basketball now for Reggie Miller to be their guy. Just come on, move on from him. But anyway, 
I thought Brogdon's post-game press conference was really interesting. And I mentioned the fact that Brogdon said he thought they played tight. Jalen, after the game, when he was asked, hey, Malcolm said you guys played tight. He said, no, we didn't. Like, so Jalen basically was saying, no, nah, that's not true. So I do think that's kind of weird that Brogdon's the guy that said that. I agree with him. Like, they did look tight, especially Jalen. I agree with what Brogdon was saying. But as a guy that didn't really play in this game, I don't think he should be saying that. I don't think he should be saying that at the podium, like, we play tight. Because when you're saying we play tight, you're really referencing one guy. Not that Malcolm Brogdon meant it to sound that way, but the guy you're going to ask questions to if you're a media member after that comment from Brogdon is Jalen because Jalen had the eight turnovers. So I don't think that was a very smart thing for Brogdon to say. Oh, anyway, I mentioned the Derek White putback at the beginning here. Man, the guy goes for 18 points. He tried to bring you back in that third quarter. He was absolutely incredible in that third quarter where I really felt like at times he was going to be the guy that <laughs> I was thinking, well... Could you justify, give if they come all the way back, could you justify giving Derek White the Larry Bird Award for the MVP of the conference finals? Because he was so good. I think back to that third quarter. Gets to the line on a drive to make it 59-45. Hits a wing three to make it 59-48. And one, 59-52. Then a drive and a finish to make it 68-58. Gets to the line on Vincent. Hits one of his two free throws. Then he blocks Struess. Gets the ball and it gets free throws for Tatum on the other end in terms of because they're in the bonus. Then he got to the line on his drive, makes it 74-66. I really thought we we're going to have another game where Brogd- or excuse me, where Derek White was the hero of the game. And unfortunately, Derek White was so good in the series. It's going to be an afterthought because, of course, now we're talking about bigger picture issues for the Celtics and how they came all the way back and then lost it at the end. So unfortunately, Derek White, not the hero, man. It just it was a really upsetting game. It was a really, really aggravating game and you just felt like man to do all this to get back in the series and for it to end this way it's just really really unfortunate but it's the same stuff over and over again Jalen turnovers weird decisions as it pertains to the rotation having no answer for the heat zone which is like incredible it's not like this incredible defense that zone defense like there's ways to break it and the Celtics just could not figure it out the entirety of the series and like with the Tatum thing as I alluded to Win one of the first couple games, and then Tatum getting a little injury here, it's not as costly. All right, a lot more to get into. I do want to get into sort of some big picture issues with the Celtics team. What are they going to do with Jalen Brown and Joe Mazzula going forward? How much confidence do you have in him leading this team? We'll get into that in just a little bit here. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike after just a difficult loss for the Celtics. Difficult night in general. And look, we'll continue to talk about big picture things with the Celtics as the summer goes on, but just... As we're reacting to this game, you're thinking about it. You're watching your second best player turn the basketball over eight times. And can you really justify 
giving Jalen Brown a supermax, or would it be worth experiencing something else as an organization where, hey, is Tatum and Brown, they're two great players, but Jason Tatum is clearly a step above Jalen Brown and maybe even a couple of steps above Jalen Brown. Jason Tatum's an outstanding playmaker. Jason Tatum is one of the best rebounders in the NBA. Jason Tatum is just better at a lot of things than Jalen Brown. And you just wonder, he has to handle the basketball so much, be the primary ball handler a lot of times. Do you need just a more stabilizing point guard, a more stabilizing creator? Is that the better match for Jason Tatum than an additional wing that we saw tonight when you needed him the most, you couldn't trust Jalen Brown to play make. When you had to ask Jalen Brown to have the ball in his hands more, what did he do? He continually turned the basketball over. And he's never going to be a good dribbler. He's never going to be a good ball handler. He's never going to be a good passer. So would it be worth kicking the tires on moving on from Jalen, especially do you want to be locked into that Supermax contract and be paying this guy almost $300 million? And at the same point, on the other side of this with Jason Tatum, where he's now eligible for the Supermax as well, he's going to get over $300 million. You have to ask, what's in the best interest of Jason Tatum? Your question should not be, hey, how do we help Jalen Brown the most? It's, hey, what's the best fit with Jason Tatum? Because Jason Tatum is the first team All-NBA guy. Jason Tatum is the far superior player. And I would at, I would be thinking long and hard this summer. It's not as easy as we thought it was originally. When Jalen qualified for the Supermax, you felt, oh, just give him the Supermax. Makes sense because there's going to be no leverage. You're not going to be getting a hometown discount with Jalen after everything that is sort of transpired with the trade rumors, the Kevin Durant stuff, the Emay stuff, all that, right? So one interesting trade that I saw was Michael Pina put this out in his piece last week when the Celtics went down 3-0. He was talking about the possibility of moving on from Jalen. And then he tweeted out another possible trade, and that was Jalen to Atlanta, which you know the connection there with Jalen being from the state of Georgia. So that deal would be Jalen for DeJounte Murray, a Kongwu and Sadiq Bay. And money is pretty close, basically a million apart, so the deal would work. Murray in that Celtic series, 23, 7.2, and 6.8. Last year in San Antonio, averaged 21.1, 8.3 rebounds, and 9.2 assists to go along with 2.0 steals. This past season, 20.5, 5.3 rebounds, 6.1 assists. So the rebounds and the assists were down a little bit, and the assists are down a little bit because Trey Young has the ball all the time, right? Now, the impact numbers did not really like him this year, but you go back to San Antonio where he was running the show, not Trey Young. He was running the show. There were no real studs around him. This year, it was sort of a weird fit with Trey Young. But two years ago, Murray on the court, the Spurs had an offensive rating that climbed by 3.3 points per 100 possessions. That was in the 76th percentile via cleaning the glass. Last year, that number was at 2.8, which is in the 75th percentile in terms of the increase of points per 100 possessions with him on the court, okay? So I just wonder it from this perspective, you think about him being the main piece in that trade and you think about, well, Trey Young and DeJounte Murray, that's a wonky fit and it will be easier to move on from Murray than it would be Trey Young, right? There's a lot more questions with Trey Young in terms of, hey, is he the guy to carry the franchise? DeJounte Murray's not a number one player, but he would be coming to the Celtics to be a number two guy. The fit of Jalen Brown, a wing with Trey Young, a point guard makes a lot more sense than the fit of DeJounte Murray and Trey Young. So would the Celtics say, hey, DeJounte Murray is actually a better fit with Tatum, and the Hawks would look at it and say, you know what, actually, Jalen is a way better fit and a better player than DeJounte Murray if you're just comparing the two guys individually, right? And so that's why I know people get caught up in, well, you can't trade the better player. Let me get into that in greater detail, but they say, okay, DeJounte Murray and Jason Tatum make more sense than Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, right? So 
Also, you look at the fact that the effective field goal percentage for Murray's teams when he was on the court. In 2021, it climbed by 2.8 percentage points. That was in the 88th percentile, so he's creating good offense. In 21-22, it climbed by 1.5 percentage points. That was in the 76th percentile. So the team shoots much better when DeJounte Murray's on the court. So he did have a major impact on the offense when Jalen never grades out well in the impact metrics, right? As we alluded to with this series, they were horrible with Jalen on the court. But this past season, too, in Atlanta as a pick-and-roll ball handler, another thing that Jalen really is not good at, being the guy that is running a pick-and-roll, we saw in this Game 7, if you look at Murray, 50.6 effective field goal percentage, 73rd percentile, which is really good. Now, he's never been a great three-point shooter, but neither has Jalen, but he did hit 44% of his corner threes this season. That was in the 80th percentile. And he has a nice mid-range game and a nice floater game. Short mid-rangers via cleaning the glass, 46%. That was in the 66th percentile. 46% on long mid-rangers, 64th percentile. That's a consistent shot for a guard that the short mid-rangers, that floater game, that runner game, he has that. And he's a good two, um, a two-point pull-up shooter. 244, 498 this season, 49%. So those are really good numbers. So yeah, he's not going to hit a lot of threes, but... He can get to his floater game, he can run a pick and roll, and he can distribute the basketball unlike Jalen Brown. This guy is a legitimate bona fide creator that can run your offense. So what we're talking about in Murray is a good defensive guard, a good playmaker, and a guy that can hit pull-up twos, runners, floaters, all that different type of stuff. So he checks a lot of boxes. He can play a traditional point guard role, help Tatum with the playmaking. He's a really good defensive player, and he's a really good passer, okay? So with a bigger playmaking role, He's better than anybody else on the Celtics team besides Jason Tatum, right? Because he can be a creator that is a scorer and a passer. Brogdon is a scorer, not a passer. White is a pretty good scorer and a pretty good passer, but DeJounte Murray can DeJounte Murray rather can do more of that every down backing, if you will, like the every down running back role. Like he can do that. He can handle it throughout the game. And Smart's a good passer, but he's not a great scorer, right? So it just feels like he would solve that issue where, okay, we get creation and we get scoring and we get an elite defense so he would fit in on the defensive side as well and I talked to Pina about this it would probably mean the end of smart because and if you look at Murray too better traditional point guard sides at 6'4 great size for the position but if you're going with a guy that's a little bit younger in DeJounte Murray and you're going with a guy that Knows coming in, he's not going to be the number one guy, right? Because they have Jason Tatum. I, I love Marcus Smart as a player, but you may have to say, yeah, it's okay to move on from Marcus Smart, right? And now I'm not saying that Marcus Smart would be going to Atlanta. Obviously, that deal would be for Jalen, but you would probably move Marcus Smart elsewhere. And whether it's bringing in additional shooting, whether it's bringing in just some depth in terms of your big men, which I'll get to in a second here, it just, it may have to. And that way, if you're moving on from Jalen, you may have to move on from Marcus as well. If you're making this deal now, Okongwu, I really like. Now, remember, Danny Ainge really liked him in the draft. Remember, there was the rumor that he wanted to move up to get him. But if you look at the past two years, he's really helped the Hawks defensively. A 112.1 defensive rating two years ago with him on the floor. 3.6 points better per 100 possessions via cleaning the glass. That was in the 78th percentile. And 2.8, the improvement in terms of the percentage points on the effective field goal percentage. That was in the 90th percentile. This year, 2.6, which is in the 89th percentile. So this guy really affects good defense. And if you look at his per 36 this year, 15.4, 11.2, 2.16, uh, 1.6 assists. Those are really good numbers. So a double-double per 36 minutes and two blocks. 
And I love Rob, as you just heard me. I thought he should have played significantly more minutes in this game tonight. But this is another athletic big man that can give you Rob insurance, right? Because unfortunately, part of the Rob Williams era has come with a lot of injuries. And you would like to have that depth. Remember, you had Cornette. You realize he's not playable. Traded for Mascala. You decided that he wasn't playable anymore. This would be a guy that could certainly fit in and be a guy that plays similarly to Rob, where you can have a lob threat, right? Like, Rob is not the only guy on the team that would be the spacer anymore. You can have a Kong would do that as well. He does have a reliable, like, push shot in the short mid-range, 71 of 147, which is 48.3%. That's a shot I'd like Rob to work on a little bit, but that's a really reliable shot for him. And he was in the 75th percentile as a roll man this year. 1.27 points per possession as the roller. To put that into context, Anthony Davis, one of the best rollmen in the NBA, was at 1.28. So he's right there. So you're talking about a lob threat and a shot blocker that you can play that same style when Rob's in the court. So that And a young player, too, right? And remember, you would bring in basically a great pick-and-roll ball handler in Murray, 73rd percentile, and a great rollman in a Kongwu at the 75th percentile, just getting downhill more, right, with those two guys. And then on top of that, Sadiq Bey. Bay went to Atlanta shooting, really helped that offense. Very small sample size, but they had a 124.3 offensive rating with him on the floor. That was in the 98th percentile. 6.7 points per 100 possessions. The offensive rating jumped. That was in the 92nd percentile. And I know his career, just a 36.1% three-point shooter, but he should be a better shooter than that. Most of his career was in Detroit, right? And if he plays with more talented players like he did at the end of his, the season here in Atlanta when he was effective, had a couple of nice playoff games against the Celtics. But if he's on the Celtics, if he had in this hypothetical, a guy like Jason Tatum, a guy like DeJounte Murray, these rollers, the Robert Williams of the world, the Aneka Kongwus of the world, you're going to get a lot of easier opportunities. And basically, he didn't even have the best playmaker that Detroit had during the time that he was there because Cade Cunningham barely played this year. OK, and we know he can get hot from three. We've seen it multiple times against the Celtics team. So look, ideally, you would like the Jalen thing to work out. But after what we saw, all the turnovers and some of the issues that Jalen's had with the organization, and do you really want to give that guy the supermax? Murray Okongwun Bay, a real point guard, a lob threat and a defender, and a three-point shooter. And even though Jalen is the superior player to Murray, that package makes a lot of sense to me. And organizationally, everything has to be about Tatum. So I know if you're saying, Brian, you're crazy thinking that this is a good trade to bring in Murray for... Jalen Brown. But with Jason Tatum, you tell me. What you have right now is another really good wing in Jalen Brown. And I know this is right after they lose game seven, so it's fresh. He has the eight turnovers and all that. Is another wing next to Tatum more valuable, or is it more valuable to have a real point guard that is similar in terms of the age, an elite defender at that position, a really good passer at that position, and another lob threat offensively? Because we know this about Tatum. He loves playing with Rob Williams because he's that lob threat, that vertical spacer. If it was me and that offer was on the table from Atlanta, I would seriously consider it. And I think right now I would make that trade if I was the Celtics, because I do think that this is a better fit for Jason Tatum. It's nothing against Jalen Brown. I love him as a player, but I just don't know. Like you think about it tonight. You have a situation where Jason Tatum needs help from his wingman, and he was not available to help him out in terms of any of the playmaking whatsoever. So I do think that's a cleaner fit. If that trade was presented to me, I would do it. And I love a Kongwu too. Maybe that's part of the issue here is I love a Kongwu where I think that's Rob insurance. We know what Tatum loves. He loves guys that can he can throw lobs up to because it makes his life a whole lot easier. Get him one of those and get him a true point guard. I would do it. All right. I did also want to get to Joe and sort of his future here because it's interesting. We've seen 
the Red Sox move on from a coach or a manager, I should say, when they're close. Grady Little in 2003, remember, 5-2 in the eighth inning of Game 7. Pedro gives up the three hits, and a run comes in. They make it 5-3. Pedro's already at 118 pitches. Didn't yank him then. And after that, Jorge Posada, two-run single. They tie the game up to make it 5-5. Okay, so we all know the history. After that, Aaron fucking Boone. But you needed to move on from Grady Little because it was so bad in that 0-3 series. You bring in Tito, what happens? The Red Sox win the next year. 2012, Bobby Valentine, a complete mess. Now, this team was not close to a championship, obviously. They finished 69-93, and a 426 winning percentage, last in the American League East. He was a complete dumpster fire. Complete mess, right? He actually, remember he said he invented the wrap sandwich? And he was so bad in the clubhouse. He called out Kevin Euclid, said he showed a lack of enthusiasm for the game of baseball and didn't look as physically or emotionally into the game as he did in the past. I forgot about this when I was looking up the Bobby V era, if you will. So this clubhouse, they had a major issue there because Euclid, even though he wasn't the same player anymore, he was still a leader in that clubhouse. And it clearly pissed off Pedroia. Pedroia said at the time, I don't really understand what Bobby's trying to do. But that's not the way we go about our stuff around here. And I'm sure he'll figure it out soon. Okay. Then he threatened to fight Glenn Ordway. Of course, the former radio host at WEI worked with Glenn. Great guy. But he threatened Glenn to a fight. Ordway asked Bobby V if he had checked out. And Bobby V said, what an embarrassing thing to say. If I were there right now, I'd punch you right in the mouth. Okay. So Bobby V had lost it. Next year, you bring in John Farrell. You just need another voice, a guy that was familiar with the organization. Remember, he was the pitching coach for Tito Francona. So they bring back John Farrell. They go 97, 65, and 13. They win the World Series. Then Farrell's losing it in 17. And remember, he overused Chris Sale. They were obsessed with getting him in the 300 strikeouts. He was worn down when they got to the postseason. They bring in Alex Cora in 18, and they win the World Series. Okay, Now, in the case of Grady Little, you couldn't come back from that in terms of a managerial tactical decision. The clubhouse would not accept it. In the case of Bobby Valentine, he was just incompetent. That was obvious. So even though Farrell is not a great tactical manager, it looked good on paper because he had the familiarity with the organization and he was the pitching coach. So he knew guys. And with Cora, you had a guy that played for the organization, was a leader when he was here for the 07 team as a platoon guy. He was a leader for that team, really helped out Dustin Pedroia when he was struggling. And he knew exactly how to pitch to the Red Sox because of the Astros experience. And he brought that over and they win the World Series. So we've literally seen this happen three times with the Red Sox in recent history where they've decided, hey, we're going to move on from the manager and the next manager they bring in wins the World Series like the very next year. Okay, now this is all relating to Joe Mazzullo. The reason I bring this up is this. I don't believe the Celtics are going to move on from Joe Mazzulla. When I look at the big picture of this and you think about the fact that he is the leftover from Brad Stevens' staff, this is Brad's guy. This is sort of like Brad's protege. He wants him to work. Brad wants Joe Mazzulla to work. And I totally understand where Brad's coming from with that. And you look at the fact that he's 34. You think he's going to get better. He had a really bad game seven, but he was better in games four through six. So you think that he's going to improve. And I don't believe that they want to shake the boat again and have their fourth coach in four seasons, right? You go from Brad to Ime to Joe Mazzulla, and then right after that, you're going to move on. Now, the one thing I'll say they really need to get is a veteran coach on the bench, somebody that has the gravitas and somebody that has sort of the long-term resume in the NBA where you're like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. And a guy that can be 
basically the number one guy for Joe Missoula and help him out when it comes to stuff like this, right? Like tonight, help him out with this rotation stuff. Like, is somebody telling him, like, come on, like, this is not a good decision. Get Rob back on the court. There's no reason for Grant to start the fourth quarter. He just needs somebody to help him out. And I'm not telling you that Joe Missoula can never be a great coach in the NBA because I like a lot of the stuff that he does, but I do think they need to get that assistant. So that's what I think the direction they'll go. But I will ask you this. Now, we know Nick Nurse is off the table. He took the job with Philadelphia. So that's no longer part of the equation. But there was some smoke around the Ty Lue thing, right? What if Ty Lue, what if it was out there that Ty Lue wanted to coach the Celtics? Ty Lue is one of the best tacticians in the NBA. I guarantee you he would have figured out ways to beat the zone. I guarantee you that he would have been more methodical as it pertains to the rotations. He knows how to coach two wings together if you do decide to bring back Jalen Brown to give him that supermax because he coached Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. We know that he was upset with the situation with the Clippers. If Ty Lue really wants to get away from the Clippers and he's available, you really have to consider that if you're the Celtics. Now, I'm not saying I'm not saying that I know any of this to the extent that they that Ty Lue actually wants to come to the Celtics. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that would be a really appealing job for a guy like Ty Lue, where these two guys, the wings here, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, they play every fucking game. They want to be on the court. It's the opposite of the Paul George, Kawhi Leonard thing, where they have all this load management stuff. The Celtics don't do that with their two best players. If I'm Ty Lue, look, this team was one win away from getting to the finals this year. They were two wins away from winning the championship. I think if I come in with my coaching style, I can win an NBA championship if I'm Ty Lue. If I was Ty Lue, I don't know, man. I'd be putting that out there. And if I'm the Celtics and if Ty Lue is actually a real possibility, I think you got to consider that. But what I expect to happen is Joe Mazzula to be back coaching this team next year. And I believe he will improve. I believe he will get better. But that would be an interesting dynamic if Ty Lue's name gets floated out there that he wants to leave. We've already heard stuff about he's not happy with the Clippers, but and we'll see what happens with all these other situations in the NBA. Adrian Griffin, of course, got the Bucks job. So we'll see. And the Suns still have an opening, of course, but we'll see what happens there. I just think it'd be a really interesting dynamic and wrinkle if Ty Lue, like, it's out there that, hey, yeah, you know, I may want to coach the Celtics. Maybe pass that Maybe pass that note along. All right. A lot more to get into. I do want to get to some of your calls and get to an email or two next as well. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Let's get to a couple of your calls. We'll get to an email as well. All right, so that number is 617-396-7172. Who's up first? Wow, that was a rough game, man. That was a rough series. Fucking hell. So here's the question. All kinds of things went wrong tonight. Of course, uh, Jason getting injured in the first play, but did Jalen Brown just play his way out of Boston? What a mess from... 
the supposed best player, second best player on the team. I don't know, man. It's hard to see him sort of getting a Supermax contract, getting all that money, coming back. <sighs> Disappointment. Terrible, terrible game seven. All right, Brian, I'm sure you got a lot to talk about. Thanks for the show. Take care. Yeah, it's a fair point, and we talked about it briefly, briefly earlier with this Atlanta situation, but right now, Supermax contract, he's not a Supermax player, but you have to decide as an organization, we're either giving him the Supermax or moving on, because there's no in-between. Like, you can't just play this situation out with Jalen Brown, and if you're not going to offer him the Supermax, he's going to ask for a trade. That Atlanta one is awfully tempting to me. And if you ask me right now, as I told you earlier, if that was on the table, Murray Okongwu and Sadiq Bey for Jalen Brown, I would make that trade. I just feel like we have too much evidence that Jalen is not a good ball handler. Jalen turns the basketball over too much. He's not obviously a number one option. He's a really good number two option. He's not, he's an okay defensive player. His defense has slipped this year. He's not a great defensive player. He has lapses defensively all the time. He's not good navigating and getting around screens. He can when he wants to be a pretty good one-on-one defender like we saw with James Harden in that Philadelphia series. But all in all, he's an incredible shot maker. That's his thing. He's a really, really good shot maker. And I don't believe there is another step with Jalen. I do believe there could be another step with Tatum where he just becomes more consistent as a shooter. His shot is too good. Like it looks too good for it not to be consistent, but his playmaking's improved. He's already one of the best rebounders in the NBA. And even if this is what he is for the rest of his career, he's still an elite player. I don't see Jalen. Jalen is what? Somewhere in, I know he was second team All-NBA, but he's not a 50, he's not one of the 15 best players in the league. And you want to give a guy that's not a one of the 15 best players in the league a Supermax when the fit with, in that hypothetical I gave you that Pina pointed out, with DeJounte Murray and with Akonga with Bay, it's cleaner than it is with Jalen Brown. You still got the other guys you have in terms of the depth with the Derek Whites of the world. I think I would do that right now if I were the Celtics. All right, who's up next? Hey, Brian, Luke from the South End here. You know, I'm, I'm walking home today, tonight from, from the game. And I got to say, you know, I'm, I've been thinking, you know, should I be happy? Should I be sad about how the Celtics season went this year? And I got to say that I'm pretty upset. You know, I felt like this team was a lot better than the Miami Heat. Um, you know, they showed that in winning three games after being down 3-0. But at the end of the day, you know, tonight, tonight sucked. Like they were bad tonight. And it was, it sucked that Jason Tatum twisted his ankle, you know, early on in the game and all that. But at the end of the day, it was just sad to see the better team, you know, just not show up. Um, so I'm pissed off and I'm not sure what the Celtics should do next year, but I, I feel like they should do something because, you know, it was great that they came back from from 3 but at the end of the day, this team is very, very talented, and that's just not the really the result that that they that they should be shooting for. So anyway, that's my rant. Thanks. Yeah, I feel you, man. Like this was a very difficult thing to lose, and I'm with you in the sense that this was the more talented team, but they just couldn't put it together for the entirety of a series. I mean, they easily could have lost the Philadelphia series. You could argue they should have lost the Philadelphia series. They could have lost this one in six games if if it isn't for that miraculous Derek White play at the end of that game. So it just just feels like they are so close, yet they have these issues that they can't fix. And when you hear these 
exit interviews, if you will. Now, they'll have their actual exit interviews where they talk to the media. But the final post-game interview, if you will, when they're all talking about the defensive identity not being there. I get it. During the regular season, they in totality, they were second in defense. But I think we can all agree it wasn't the same level of defensive intensity that we saw throughout the season. And one other thing, just sort of circling back to Joe, the double bigs that worked so well last year. Remember when Rob went down for a little bit after he came back from the knee thing, and then he went down again with the hamstring situation, he never went back in the starting lineup. And I just wonder if they leaned into the double big lineup more throughout the regular season when Rob came back from that second absence, if you will, if he would have been more willing to go to that earlier against Philadelphia, or we would have seen it be more impactful against Miami. I know it wasn't early in the series, but tonight when they went to the double big, it actually worked. And by the way, just speaking of lineups, I know I forgot to mention this one earlier. There was another lineup tonight, game seven, where you didn't have Smart, Al, and Tatum on the court. All three of those guys, your three best passers, the heat got his own. It's just easy to defend. Like, I don't know how there could ever be a time in this series where you didn't have one of those three guys on the court. You'd like to have two of the three on the court all the time, but to not have one of those three guys on the court when you know the Heat like to play zone, it's just, it's unacceptable from the coach not to have that lineup out there. But I'm with you, man. I'm very disappointed. It sucks. It's a shitty walk to have to do after the game as well. At least it's not cold. Beautiful day. Unbelievable day. All right, who's up next? Hey there, it's Ben from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Yeah, it's so interesting. I don't really know how to feel about this game. Obviously, it's so disappointing, but should we really feel like we let one slip away when it kind of felt like the result was determined after the first play? I mean, you watch Tatum roll that ankle, and then just throughout the game, you watch it slowly take its effect until the end where he couldn't even run every time he jumped or started to run. He was grimacing, and you just felt you had no chance. Obviously, you're disappointed in Jalen Brown, and I know that we had the Derek White injury as well. Just compounding all those factors, I think. The only person you can really be frustrated with is, is, is Jalen. Otherwise, it's just a unlucky way to end the season. You, you really can't say what would have happened if Tatum hadn't gotten hurt in that first play, especially because, you know, we we showed our aggression from the tip, showed our aggression when Tatum was driving on that first play and it kind of felt like our motivation, our sense of urgency just went, you know, through the earth when when he rolled that ankle. All right. Look, I understand where you're coming from, but let's just point out this. The Hawks had to not have DeJounte Murray for a game. Okay. Now he deserved to be suspended when he went into the official, clearly, but they won a game without DeJounte Murray. The Philadelphia 76ers beat you without Joel Embiid, okay? They beat you in game one without Joel Embiid. The Heat didn't have their second most reliable scorer, Tyler Hero. Now, you could argue, hey, Tyler Hero's a liability defensively. Maybe it actually helped them. But the point being, they didn't have that option. They didn't have the option to play Tyler Hero. Tatum played the majority of the game. And I, I completely agree. He was banged up. I mentioned it earlier. You could tell that he couldn't move. But the other component to the Tatum situation is you still could have won the game. You were still in the game. You cut it down in the third quarter. So I'm not using that as an excuse, especially considering this team from a health perspective. I know Brogdon was banged up, but this team has been more lucky from a health aspect than most of the other teams in the postseason. So I'm not using that as an excuse whatsoever. It's definitely not an excuse for your second best player to have eight turnovers. All right. If you want to leave us some voicemail, make sure to do so. 617-396-7172. Let's get to an email. That email address is pike at gmail.com. And for that, we bring in our producer, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, how are you, man? Uh, I am fine, I guess. Hanging in there. 
But um, just exhausted, frankly. This is an exhausting team. <laughs> I'm sure they're exhausted, too. I was thinking that later. It's like, I think everyone's just tired, fans included. Yeah, and that's why I like the last game. I didn't get game six, why Al played so many minutes and Rob played 17. And again, we see Rob tonight play 14 minutes. But yeah, I, I, I would agree with you. They look exhausted. They definitely look tired. But it is an exhausting experience watching this team. And look, they one went away from the finals after going to the finals last year. I know a lot of fan bases have a lot more to complain about than we do as Celtics fans. But yeah, this one definitely stings and definitely feeling tired after watching the Celtics this postseason. Yeah, for sure. And I think. Uh... On top of just physically exhausted, they're mentally exhausted. And it's just, uh, I don't know. I don't know if you feel, I think you do feel more tired if you play an extra season of basketball, basically in the postseason versus just not even making the the playoffs. So I feel like the last two years are definitely going to take a toll on this team. But uh, hopefully they can come back stronger. And they had opportunities both years to win an NBA championship and unfortunately Mm -hmm. come up short both times. All right. What we got for an email here, Jamie? We got another Brian. We got Brian in Utah, but originally from Maine. He's got another trade idea. Um, he writes, if I have to watch Jalen Brown dribble the ball off his foot one more time in a Celtics uniform, I'm going to throw up. With Tatum being hobbled early, the only chance we had was that Brown rose to the occasion. He did not. He proves tonight that he's Robin will always be Robin. Sometimes I feel like that's even uh, too generous. Anyways, uh, I'm done with them. I want to get out of town, send him to Portland for Damian Lillard, at least we'll get a return on that $50 million and have someone who can hit a three-pointer. What do you think of that trade, Brian? The one thing that I would say about the Damian Lillard aspect of this is he's a he's great shooter, great scorer, all that, can run a pick and roll, be a great fit with Tatum, even though he's somewhat of a liability defensively. Obviously, the guy's an incredible player. But dealing with injuries this year, and I know part of it, they shut him down for the draft pick. But from a Portland perspective, You're trading for Jalen with no assurance that he would sign there. The reason that the Hawks thing makes more sense to me is it's the Hawks. He's from the state of Georgia, right? So it makes a little bit more sense to me that he would want to go there. The Portland thing, and I don't know his relationship with Trey Young, but Trey Young, say what you want about him in terms of he definitely has weaknesses, but he's an all-star. He's been an all-star. He's been an all-NBA guy in the past. So Trey Young, it makes sense. Like, okay, that's another good player where we can compete. If you're going to Portland and they're trading away, basically the best player on the team, Damian Lillard, why is Jalen going to want to re-sign there, right? Because if you think about it now, they have a good draft pick, but they don't have the draft pick. They don't have the number one pick. So they're going to end up with what? Brandon Miller or Scoot, one of those two guys at number three. So is Jalen going to say, hey, let me grow with this young rookie and Anthony Simons? Like that's the guys that he wants to grow with. I just, I understand it from a Celtics perspective, wanting Damian Lillard, right? I totally understand where you're coming from with that. I just look at it from the other perspective, and I don't really see why Portland would want to make that move, right? You're building your team around, is Jalen Brown going to be your number one? Is he going to be your number two, right? Because, and like the age with Jalen, who is going to be entering, what, his 27-year-old season, the age with Jalen and either Scooter Brandon Miller, there's too much of a gap there in terms of the championship window. Now, Lillard, yes, he's significantly older than Tatum, but you would be bringing him here to win now. I just don't think from the other side, it makes sense for Portland to want to do that deal. I understand all the arguments for the Celtics perspective, but you got to have two to tango. And I just don't see why Portland will want to make that deal considering where Jalen's at in terms of sort of the contractual situation as well. And where he's at in his career, where this should be the time you want to compete for championships. Yeah, I hear you on that. I think the only thing I think is 
Like the idea that we're in a win now mode right now with Tatum at 25. I mean, maybe I'm just feeling greedy, but I have uh, ideas of a dynasty, you know, with Tatum and Brown. And obviously that's not happening up to date, but you know, you've said time and time again that these guys usually don't take it all the way until their 27, 28 year old season. And I don't know if we're just being rash the, the night of, if we're just pulling the plug too early. I mean, on the one hand, this is two years in a row, they've come up short. But on the other hand, this is two years in a row. They've come very, very, very close. And it's just like, what if, I, I don't know if it's blowing it up too early is too rash or they're just one little step away, but I'm not sure. Yeah, well, I, I look at it from this perspective is I thought a couple of years ago when people were saying trade Jalen Brown, split him and Tatum up, it made no sense, right? Because these guys were still sort of in their embryonic stages as NBA yeah. players. So you should not be, get, two, three years ago, you should not be giving up on this. But now we've sort of seen what it looks like. It's an elite level team. It's a team that went to the finals and it went to the Eastern Conference finals. But I think what we have clearly found out is Tatum is significantly better than Jalen Brown. It's not even close. Yeah. We can't, yeah, we yeah. knew that coming into the season as well. But that gap is large. So the question is now more about Jason Tatum than it is Jalen Brown. And you want to lock into Jalen Brown knowing he can't run the offense. You can never run offense through Jalen Brown. So, yes, you have these guards that can do it in some sense. But I do think that this team would really benefit from a traditional playmaking point guard. And that's exactly what DeJounte Murray could do. That's why I'm awfully tempted if I'm the Celtics to do that, because I look at it from the perspective of this is a cleaner fit, even though mm -hmm. he's not as good as Jalen. It's a cleaner fit with Jason Tatum and sort of the strengths of DeJounte Murray complement Jason Tatum better, even though he's not as good as Jalen. His skill set is more complementary to Jason Tatum, and he gets another rim runner in Okongwu in that deal as well. And I like I can make the argument for Atlanta, like why Atlanta would do it. I just can't do it with the Portland one. I know everybody like loves Damian Lillard. I, just, I can't make the argument when it comes to, to that side. You had to guess. You think Missoula stays, JB goes, Missoula goes, JB stays, or they both go or they both stay. What do you think? My guess is they both stay. Is yeah. I, I think they say, hey, look, we were one win away from the NBA Finals. Yeah, it got ugly there for a little bit. Let's give Missoula an opportunity here. As I mentioned earlier, the one interesting thing would be if like it gets out there that Ty Lue wants the Celtics job. That's one of the best tactical coaches in the game from my perspective, so that would be tempting. But I, my guess would be that Joe's back and that Jalen's back as well. They just give him the Supermax. Do you think we're missing something with the idea of like, oh, that – Missoula is Brad's guy, or was he just the guy in front of him when they came into this horrible situation with Emang the day before the season? Like, no, he's like Brad's guy. No, we're not missing anything. He's Brad's guy. He was the only guy that was on Brad's staff and Emang's staff. And you had a guy in Damon Stoudemire that yeah. was basically one of the main assistants last year for Emang, right? Like, obviously, if Will Hardy was still here when the Emang situation happened, they would have promoted Will Hardy. But if you were looking at it just on paper, who was more qualified to be the head coach of the Boston yeah. Celtics this year, it would have been Damon Stoudemire. Now, I'm not telling you that Damon Stoudemire would have made all the difference in the world and he would have been a great coach. I don't know. He's coaching at Georgia Tech now, okay? So I don't, I don't know if he would have been a great coach. But if you're talking about just from the perspective of, is this Brad's guy, that's evidence that this is Brad's guy, that Missoula yeah. was the guy that got the job. And coincidentally, of course, he was on Brad's staff as well. So no, I, I don't think we're missing anything with this not being Brad's guy. Brad is really invested in Missoula and wants this to work out. I just mean, like, if, if, if Ime resigns the day after the finals last year, you think Missoula still gets the job? No, Will Hardy would have. Okay, fair enough.
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Will Hardy would have, and Will Hardy's done a really good job. And you like, there's no way you could have justified that. Like everybody knew that Will Hardy was a coaching star. Danny Ainge was at the games last year, and it's not a coincidence that he took him to Utah. Will Hardy would have got the job. But after Will Hardy left, then it became a legitimate question who's going to get the job. And that gave Brad the ability to go with Missoula over a guy like Damon Sotomayor. And the Sotomayor thing, too, I don't think it should be lost on the fact that he left during the season to take the Georgia Tech job. So that's a guy that was a former player that you had on the staff that was... Very well respected from the guys there, right? Damon Stoudemire played in a lot of big playoff games when he was in the NBA with the Portland Trailblazers. That is a guy that they could have leaned on more. So I do think that's sort of like an underrated storyline is when he took the Georgia Tech job because you had already lost so much brain power with Ime and with Will Hardy, and you at least had Damon Stoudemire to help out Joe Mazzulla. So that is sort of something that deserves more attention than it got. We mentioned it on the pod when it happened, like, oh man, like this is kind of a big loss. and. Who knows? Maybe if Damon Stoudemire's there, maybe some of these adjustments during the postseason come earlier. Last thing, Brian. So they stuck with their green jerseys. Superstitious team, right? Yep. Joe Mazzulla shaves off his mustache after a oh. three-game win streak. What I didn't notice that. that. I, didn't, I mean, come on. It's looking like a baby. Yeah, Big mistake. You, you pick up at everything, man. I didn't notice that. <laughs> so, hey, blame, blame, blame Joe not for the rotation changes. Blame him for the mustache. That's why they lost. All right, good stuff, Jamie. I appreciate it, man. Thanks, Brian. Talk soon. All right, and if you do want to email us, make sure to email us at offthepike at gmail.com. All right, I did want to mention this real briefly before we go. Marcelo Meyer is getting promoted to Portland. I'm sure you saw this over the weekend. In Greenville this year, 290, 366, 524, 890. Okay, so metric man breakdown of Meyer so far. The isolated power is at 234. That's just you subtract the slugging percentage from the batting average. That number was at 184 at the same level last year in 25 games compared to the 35 games this year. That 234 would be in the top 30 in Major League Baseball, so he's hitting for significantly more power now. Only two Red Sox are north of 200 in terms of isolated power, Rafi and Connor Wong. That 524 slug, only Rafi is north of 500 on the season, and only 27 players are north of 500. And look, I get it. It's not against Major League pitching, but it's significant because those numbers are significantly up from where they were last year which tells you he's growing sort of as a power hitter, right? The power is climbing this year and he's maturing. Alex Spear had the note in the Globe that he didn't even lift weights in high school. So he was a skinny kid. He's a really smooth athlete and all this. So that's a big thing that we've seen a jump in the power numbers this year from Meyer. So the power tool is coming alive. And if you've seen the swing, I mean, it's gorgeous. And he's a big shortstop. He's now, he's number five on MLB.com's prospect rankings. Six foot two at the position, which is really big. I mean, that's like, Cal Ripken level territory. Like you're thinking about the Cal Ripkins of the world, the big shortstops, right? And remember, I just point this out because I feel like this the Marcelo Meyer thing is so interesting because ETA is 2024. He'll be up with the big league club next year. And we know, like in the future, Trevor Story, we know he can play second base. He was one of the best second basemen defensively in all of Major League Baseball last year. But this Meyer thing is just so fascinating to me because I just remember what a bizarre time it was for us as Red Sox fans when they drafted him with the fourth overall selection. Remember, this was regarded as the best prospect that year. So I remember I was at my former employer at the time, and I did a ton of those Red Sox pregame shows, and I was interviewing all these guys that covered the draft, right? And they ranked prospects. And Kylie McDaniel, who does a really good job at ESPN, he thought there was no chance when I interviewed him before a Red Sox game that Meyer would be dropping to them at four. 
He had Meyer going first, and Henry Davis, who ultimately went first to the Pirates, the catcher from Louisville, he had the Sox taking Henry Davis at four. So most people admire as the top guy. Jack Leiter, everyone had him as the top pitcher, and most people mocked him to go to the Rangers at number two because that organizational situation in Texas had no pitching. They needed pitching on the farm. Okay. And then the surprise was the Tigers decided to go with the top high school pitcher in Jackson Job, which made this Meyer thing all possible because nobody thought Meyer was going to be available. We were thinking, is there a way that Leiter can get to floor? Probably not. Who are, the, who are the Red Sox going to take it? It ends up being Marcelo Meyer, who everybody thought was the best player in the draft. Okay. So I just think that it's so weird how the Red Sox got the fourth overall selection. So think about all the things that had to happen for the Red Sox. And this kid is flying up through the organization. The quickest guy to double A in the Red Sox organization since Anthony Rizzo in 09. So he is producing very, very quickly and climbing up the ranks. And there's a reason he's already been promoted to Portland, right? And this could be the next great Red Sox player, like an absolute stud. And think about everything that transpired. So 2020 comes, Alex Cora is suspended for a year, as we know. The Red Sox traded away their best player, Mookie Betts, prior to the pandemic season. The Red Sox finished that season at 24 and 36. It's basically a two-month season, right? So they were the fourth worst team record-wise in baseball, hence the fourth overall pick. But in the regular season, they were horrible. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think they were the fourth worst team in baseball that year, right? Like a lot of shit went on. So a lot of those guys too, like on the 2020 team were part of the 2021 team that went to the ALCS. I'm not telling you that they were a playoff team or should have been a playoff team, but they weren't as bad as they actually ended up being in 2020. And remember, it's only 60 games, right? So if that is a normal 162-game season, they're not going to be the fourth worst team in Major League Baseball. Now, they were bad and there was some weird stuff going on, but they weren't going to be the worst team in baseball. And remember, they were just one game worse than the Orioles and the Diamondbacks, and they were just two games worse than the Royals, the Rockies, the Angels, the Mets, and the Nationals. So they win a couple more games or the other teams drop a game or two, you're not ending up with Marcelo Meyer. And you needed the Tigers to say, hey, let's take the number one or let's take the best pitching prospect at the high school level rather than the best player at the high school level, right? And some of the reasons the Red Sox had that poor record in 2020, J.D. Martinez complained on multiple occasions about the video. Remember, J.D. is a machine, right? Where J.D., after every at-bat, likes to go back and watch his video. Now, during the pandemic season in 2020, you were not allowed to watch video down in the clubhouse because we were all scared of the COVID spreading at the time. So they didn't want Major League Baseball, didn't want players huddled up. So JD didn't have the iPad to watch his at-bats. JD complained about this three times publicly and it clearly affected JD. That season, he hit 213, not even a season, two months. He had 213 with a 291 on base percentage. Both the worst marks of his career. So he truly did need that video like that was. And look, maybe it got to the part where it wasn't just he needed the video, but it got to the point where it's in his head, where he keeps telling people publicly that they need the video. It was clearly in his head as well. Okay, so J.D. has a horrible season and we knew that it was because of the video and it was in his head because the next year, Alex Cora takes a job, says, I'm not worried about J.D. had two bad months. The next year, he hits 286, 349, 518, 867 OPS, 42 doubles, led, led the American League, 99 RBIs, 28 bombs. So if he has the video in 2020, J.D. has a typical J.D. season, but he doesn't. That's part of the reason the Red Sox weren't good. Remember, you also didn't have Chris Sale, who had Tommy John. 
Rafi was coming off his best season at 19. He comes back to the second spring training, if you will. I forget what they called it. It was like summer camp or something. Remember that? It had a weird title. But anyway, remember the first spring training gets shut down because of COVID. When they come back for the second spring training, which is actually at Fenway, Rafi is out of shape, really out of shape. Okay. And I'm not telling you that he's ever been in the best shape, but he was noticeably in bad shape. He hit just, or he had just a 310 on base percentage that season, atrocious. And Cora was the guy that could get through to Rafi, right? Cora is the guy that could get on Rafi. And Rafi just had a really bad two months like JD did because he was out of shape. JD didn't have the video. And then there's Andrew Benintendi. Benintendi played in just 14 games. He never came back from that rib issue. Remember, he heard it at the beginning of the season, never came back. And if it was a normal year, if you played 162 games, Benintendi at some point does come back, right? And on top of all this, Eduardo Rodriguez misses the entire two months, the entire season, because he has complications after COVID. He was dealing with the myocarditis, so he never pitches. No sale and no Erod. So this shortened season, JD's video issues. Rafi's out of shape. Both those guys are bad. No sale, no Erod, Ben Intendi hurt. And Alex Cora suspended for a year. All those things had to happen for the Red Sox to end up with the fourth worst record in Major League Baseball. If just one of those things is avoided, if Erod doesn't get hurt, you're better than that. If Ben Intendi doesn't get hurt, you're better than that. If JD isn't obsessed with the video, you're better than that. If Rafi's not out of shape, you're better than that, right? If Alex Cora is not suspended, you're better than that. So that's how you basically may have landed a potential perennial all-star for the organization. It's just crazy. So sometimes you have to be lucky, right? The pain we went through that year post-Mookie. And by the way, remember one of the other bizarre things about the COVID year? Remember the Red Sox decided to put the games on at 730? And this is pre-pitch clock. Like these games are going on for forever. The Red Sox bullpen was absolutely horrible. They're starting at 730. Games are ending at like 12 at night some of the times, and it weren't, wasn't even a good product. Immediately the next year, Nesson changes back to the 710 starts. But anyway, you just knew you were doomed when Ron Renicky's coaching the team and I or managing the team. I felt bad for Ron Renicky because he he was overwhelmed, never should have had that job. But it's 5-2 in the second game of the season. In the sixth inning, they bring in this guy. The Red Sox are losing. They bring in this guy, Dylan Covey. Second game of the year, you're thinking, okay, you, you need to win this game, right? They wanted to stretch him out because he was going to the alternate site in Pawtucket the next day. Like, they wanted him to be like a long reliever or a starter, this guy Dylan Covey. So he felt, Ron Renicky did, he didn't want to bring him into a close game. So because it was 5-2, he brought him in. He said this after the game, but it was only the sixth inning. And the other part, that reason they brought him in is because he's going to the alternate site. So they knew he wasn't going to be there the next day. Like, oh, we have to get him into the, day, the game today. And Ron Renicky legitimately admitted this in his post-game press conference. And by the way, the next year, this guy pitched in China. The next year after that, he pitched in China. He came back to the States. He got DFA'd by the Dodgers. And then he was claimed by the Phillies recently. But this is the guy that they needed to get stretched out. They brought him into the game. That's when you knew it was just going to be an awful 2020 season. But who knows? Even that. What if Ron Renicky doesn't bring Dylan Covey into the game? Maybe the Red Sox come and win because he immediately gives up two runs. They make it a 7-2 game. But it just, it's, I, I love the fact that Meyer is progressing through the system so quickly. I love the fact that he's improving as it pertains to the power numbers this year compared to last season. And I'll always think of the Meyer draft pick as one of the wildest things that has happened to the Red Sox organization. I know it's crazy, but it's just wild. Like if this guy ends up being what everybody thinks he can be, which is a guy that is one of the best shortstops in the sport, maybe one of the best players in the sport, to think back to how they got him, it just, it's incredible to me.
All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com as well. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Struti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.